Welcome, dear listener, to Astonishing Tales of the Highly Improbable. I'm your host, Lloyd Allen, and this is the New Albion Orchestra. Cheeriotles, my fleek swag bays. It is the Pope of Dope, your rad boy Lloyd, enticing you with another hypnotizing episode your little brains will consume without any thought as to the psychic toll it is taking upon your flimsy little consciousnesses. Replace your worries of inadequateness with my voice. Feel my love squirm into your ear like a squishy little worm coming to hug your brains with its goo of validation. Yes, you are valid, because the goo worm says so. So, as you know, I took my flesh suit for a drive the other day. It is looking good. I used a makeup compound to cover the stitches. I broke into Penny's Beauty Palace. That's Penny's Beauty Palace on Whitespire Road, proud sponsor of the New Albion Radio Hour's astonishing tales of the highly unlikely, and stole a sack full of makeup which I fiddled with here in my laboratory. The plasticized flesh just wasn't going to happen, so I stole a heap of makeup which I've experimented with and altered to suit my purposes. It covers the stitches nicely, and it slows down the rotting process to some degree. The truth is, I'll just have to keep making flesh suits every other month. With the war heating up, though, the supply of readily handy bodies and body parts is just a collector's dream. So many delightful bodies to choose from it, it really is a healthy hobby to take my mind off my troubles. So, that Cora girl introduced me to a government man. I pitched him a few ideas, some of which were quite ingenious, but the only one he really seemed to respond to was the cigarette plan. I also managed to gleam that they've got some sort of android program of their own going, only well, he didn't say anything. It was his subconscious body reactions to a few things I said. Well, I mean, no, they don't have anything approaching android tech at this point. I have no idea what idiocy they think they're working on. But I hope they're building a cyborg. I'd pay money to see what incompetent horror show they come up with. I was clear that I need access to a plane. I'll deliver whatever plans they want, but I need a small plane. And a pilot. I cannot trust the reaction time and motor functions of this vomit-stained body. I offered him lasers, for heaven's sake. Lasers! But all he wanted was the cigarettes. Anyway, my next move is to track down Jackie, the queen of mopiness. Her idiot voodoo schlongs should have made it to the monastery by now. She needs to deliver on her promise or face my wrath. God, I hate this narrative. Tired, played-out tropes, a noticeable lack of consistency, the worst laid-out magic system I've ever encountered. It's like the whole thing has been dreamed up by a drooling god who's too busy self-pleasuring to actually get the details right. I've been to far better narratives on this moronic, diesel punk theme before. Why, Ravy and I were spies for a bit 
in a lovely war narrative with Siberian zombies and English vampires. <laughs> it was wonderful. We had such a blast. It was, it was one of those narratives where Dracula had succeeded in coming to England and taken over the royal family. Ravy even seduced the undead Princess Elizabeth and wouldn't stop going on about their torrid night of bloody-filled passion for weeks afterwards. Ah, what times. Those were the days. We had to sail across Europe to stop the Siberian zombie hordes on a ship of nails. No, not metal nails. Actual finger and toenails. The mad Swede conjured it up for us. It flew in everything. The smell left a bit to be desired, but perusing the night sky on a ghostly ship of fingernails strewn together by hair really makes up for it. We had two-fisted fightin' Roosevelt. He was a loud, crude man. Uh, he was a member of some regressed race called uh, Americans. Revolting race. I recommended we double-cross him and watch his homeland get destroyed by the Siberian zombies before we put a stop to them. But after he made some comment about beating up queers, Ravy became obsessed with seducing him. Did he succeed? Well, it depends by what you mean as succeed. He never did exactly have sex with Ravy, but that bit with having to, uh, he had to, there was this poison, and the only way for him to ingest the antidote was to, there was fellatio involved upon Raven, and Raven countered it as a win. Personally, it was the most hysterical thing I've ever seen, so I didn't argue it. Well, okay, it, it is morally questionable, but but the moment you brag about beating up queers, the kid gloves come off. You deserve what you get after that. We are merely the hand of karma come to slap you silly. I would also point out that the anecdote did actually save his miserable life, so really, we should be thanked. Zombies. Voodoo punks. Voodoo zombies. There's possibilities there. I'm, I must make a note to think further upon that. Anyway, those were the days not like this penny-dreadful feces-lading performance of idiocy I'm stuck in now. All right, anyway, we have stories to tell and brains to inch our way into. So, kids, remember, no one loves you because you are unlovable, except this show, which loves you anyway. It will always love you. And you, it. Come, listen, feel your self-worth grow with every utterance of my voice. Thus, without further ado, here is this week's episode of Astonishing Tales of the Highly Unlikely. Asha was floating in metaspace. She had only been in metaspace once before, during her initiation, and she had been a bit out of her mind as the initiation was designed to put you on the edge of madness. It involved the use of a powerful drug, a local psychedelic of sorts, and shaman techniques that had been passed down by her family for generations. Once flowered, she should be able to jump into metaspace herself, but she hadn't got that far. There was a lot to learn, so many techniques that were taught over the next few years after one's initiation, but the only ones who knew of all these techniques, her family, 
were all dead, massacred by those terrible gnomes who even now might be coming for her. They had these animals, these stark black humanoid monsters, and they rode these monsters into and through the metaverse. They were likely saddling some up now, so Asha had to move. The one advantage she had was that, although she hadn't actually been here much before, she had heard all of the stories her family told. Two things could help her. The map and a flying dragon. The map she didn't have. It was tattooed upon her uncle and painted on the walls of a specific cave only her family knew. Each generation, one of her family would get the tattoo, which, although highly symbolized, still apparently functioned as a basic map of the metaverse, the small bits surrounding them, and in particular, it highlighted noticeable strands and landmarks which were useful. She didn't know the map by heart at all, but she'd seen it both on her uncle and in the cave. She knew that the flying dragons were in a purple strand to her left, maybe... 27 or 28 strands left and up? Her best bet was to get a flying dragon. She didn't stand a chance of outrunning one of the black monsters without it. She could hide, though. That could be another way to survive. She immediately began swimming toward her left. The metaverse was the place outside of worlds and timelines. In fact, all the worlds and timelines within this dimensional level were represented here as large, enormously large, organic tubes that stretched off into forever. Sometimes they lay right next to each other, sometimes there were great distances between them, some were in rows, some up, some down, it was very confusing, and not only did the strands themselves pulsate and worm about in strange directions, the metaverse wasn't static, it all moved and shifted in ways your eyes couldn't always lock onto. The human mind wasn't made to operate in metaspace, and there were different legends of how humanity had come to be able to operate in it at all. Some of these legends involved a wheel which was present in select strands. Only strands that contained this wheel somewhere in its core had humanoids capable of interacting with the metaverse, it was said. Although even then, the odds of such humanoids being produced were small and unlikely. This was a discussion for another time, however. Asha needed to find a dragon. So, there was a strand, identifiable by its purplish hue and its location somewhere northwest, which contained a world that was... odd. It looked a lot like funny-colored clay, and had almost comical creatures roaming about. The strand was almost comical in its nature, and explorers were cautioned not to jump into it unless highly experienced. Unless you had decades of experience, you should absolutely avoid strands that are too unlike your homeworld. One tip was once in the metaverse, do not move up or down. Stay only with strands on the same horizontal plane as your home strand. Theoretically, strands closest to your own were the most like your own, and some could be almost identical, with some of the same people and events. As you move very far to either side, or up and down, this would change, and strands would become more unlike your own. The trouble was, out in the metaverse, hard and fast rules didn't exist. It might be usually like this, but there were exceptions to literally every rule and piece of advice, 
Strand shifted around so bizarrely that sometimes you end up with some strand relatively close to your own that was wildly different in nature. Like the claymation strand where the flying dragons lived. The strand had apparently appeared about two generations ago in her time, and her family warned would one day shift away to some new, immensely faraway location, how and why no one ever knew. Strands were not static, but their movement was not trackable by human methodology. At least not yet. Long ago, a mighty race had left their strand to live out in the metaverse, to map it, settle it, and tame it. They built incredible and strange roads, although these roads weren't identifiable in any way humans had ever been able to recognize, but legend said some were still there. The great watchtowers still stood, though, their forts in the insane wilderness that was the metaverse. Anyone spending any length of time in metaspace was urged to find a fort. Metaspace had dangers, Holes, monsters, weird energy bugs that sometimes coalesced into a swarm, odd little creatures wandering about, and unpredictable reality storms, shifts, and other meta-weather occurrences. Plus, too much time in metaspace could damage your psyche. At least that was what she had been told. Some of it could be superstition, but how could she know? The great race who had built the watchtowers had fallen, it was whispered. They had forgone their link to a biosphere, lived too far outside a comparable ecosystem for too many generations, and had devolved into creatures so different from their original selves as to be unrecognizable. One myth said they were caught in a mad cycle of form shifting, that too much time in meadow space had caused their form to enter a manic cycle where they shifted every few generations, or even the same beings shifted every few hundred years, their bodies in a state of permanent fluctuation. Asha swam through metaspace. A human could travel through metaspace using a number of physical techniques, but Asha didn't really know any of them. You could swim a bit and combine the movement with willing yourself forward, which was the most basic technique, and which would simply have to do for now but for real motion, a dragon was handy. Asha had a spear. It was helpful to some degree. There were some rowing motions that sort of seemed to work. The spear, though, would be absolutely necessary once she got to the dragon strand. The gnomes had entered metaspace. Three black monsters had left the strand, covered in creatures, and were flying about metaspace looking for her. She allowed herself to fall down upon a giant orangish worming tube and cling to it as one of the monsters passed close by. Asha might be ignorant in the ways of metaspace, but she was damn good with her spear, and she was certain she could take one of the black monsters. What scared her was if all the little gnomes leapt upon her and covered her with their stinking little bodies while she was trying to fight the big creature. That could be a problem, so she hid. It was impossible to say how long her journey took. She didn't really know where she was going or how to get there, and metaspace was not an easy place to hang out in. She thought about entering a strand to hide inside an actual world, and would if she were in pressing danger of being caught, but she did a fairly good job of avoiding the black monsters. Finding someone in metaspace without a scent was a nearly impossible task to begin with. She thought she might have slept for a bit atop a greenish strand, but finally came to a purplish tube. 
She landed on top of it. It was huge, of course. She put her hand to the pulsating walls of the tube and tried to read what was inside, but she had no idea how to do this and failed. Oh well. She'd have to use the old-fashioned method. She stood atop the strand and prepared to plunge her spear into it and spear herself a dragon. Standing atop a strand, it almost seemed like some kind of water flowed through it. This water would be time and events that happened inside the narrative. However, it was impossible to navigate. If you jumped into a strand, once you jumped out, you couldn't go back in time, usually, but also couldn't gauge where in time you might jump back into. Her grandfather had told her stories of jumping back in years later one time, minutes later another, and he even swore he once went back into the Strand's past timeline, entering another spot, but had never been able to do it again. Time was fluid, he stressed, literally. And standing atop the Strand, feeling the rush of water beneath her, she understood this now in a way she hadn't been able to before. She plunged her spear in, hoping to spear a dragon, but when she removed her spear, there was nothing. She was spotted. From far away, one of the black monsters in the gnome's riding it saw her and wheeled about, heading towards her. She was out of time. She plunged her spear back into the tube again. This time, when she pulled it out, attached to it was a little orange humanoid made of clay, waving his little arms and making shocked, frantic noises. She said, whoops, apologized, and put him back in. Likely he'd tell some story of alien abduction that no one would believe. The black monster was fast approaching. She didn't want to die. What was she doing wrong? At some point, one of her ancestors had figured out how to do this. Her family all knew this. It was doable and teachable. Will. She wasn't utilizing enough will. Will was central to all narrative jumping. Her grandmother had told her this. Well, the will to live was pretty primal, so Asha focused herself as firmly as she could and desired a dragon with all of her might and concentration. The black monster flew towards her. She plunged her spear in again, closed her eyes, and pulled it out. The dragon attached to her spear was only slightly larger than herself. Unlike tales of dragons that she had heard in her travels, this dragon was extremely goofy-looking. It was made of clay, multicolored, and had a big, funny smile. It licked her as she removed her spear, which obviously hadn't caused it any pain. She quickly hugged it, which it responded well to, and then leapt on its back and begged it to go. It stood there for a few seconds with that funny look, just looking around. Then it spied the monster heading straight for it, heard Asha's pleas, gave a loud, goofy honk of alarm, and took off. Say what you wanted about the silliness of its appearance. This goofy dragon knew how to fly. She easily outraced the black beast, and into and out of the metaverse they flew together, her new friend and her. They flew for hours, until finally they spied a watchtower. She motioned for the dragon to go to it, and tongue waving about, it did. They landed and entered. She wasn't sure what to expect, but it certainly wasn't what they found, which was two other people, a male and female, looking ragged, unshowered, smelling a bit pungent, 
who nevertheless looked thrilled to see her. They introduced themselves as Michael and Jill. Well, there you go. And now, you want music? Well, you're not going to get music. You're going to get whatever passes for music in this feces-ridden narrative. So, here's something that they count as a song. And you can listen to it. And there. I'm not going to. I have better things to do with my time. But, here you go. Take it away. Lucy sells her flowers for a quarter apiece She wound up on the streets She could not pay her lease She used to want to save the world But nothing to her matters now She lays about the subway station Clad in dirty tatters now Lucy's in the subway with daffodils She lost all her diamonds And she sold all her pills She's been around the block But she's had too many thrills Lucy's in the subway with daffodils Lucy holds a Dixie cup of 60 cents and change If she looks you in the eye you see that she's deranged she flew too near the sun And fried her fragile wings But to her faithful whiskey Bottles she claims Lucy's in the subway with daffodils She lost all her diamonds And she sold all her pills But she's had too many thrills Lucy's in the subway With daffodils <laughs> 